0: At this time in the center of our service each week, we come to be centered on word and sacrament so that by both we might come to Jesus. So we believe the scriptures are God's word to us. So we read them so that we might hear them and preach for them so that we might understand them and live our lives in accordance to them. And then we'll come out of the preaching time to the Lord's table in communion. Keith is going to come and read the scriptures for us this morning.
1: Morning Church, how are you? This morning's reading comes from Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. This is found on page 939 of the Black Bibles, if you happen to have one there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and <laughs> worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever, amen. but give approval to those who practice them. The word of our Lord.
0: It was about eight months ago that Chick-fil-A was the front page news of every newspaper and media outlet and the center of a huge controversy over the issue of same-sex marriage. At the time, Dan Cathy, the COO of the company, had made comments about his understanding from a biblical worldview uh, regarding same-sex marriage and homosexuality, and that began this sort of fight on both sides. Pretty soon, a, uh, a chicken sandwich became the symbol of this sort of culture war between the left and the right. Right? So you had folks in the LGBT community that reacted to that and then folks that were in the conservative communities many of them who were Christians who reacted to that and pretty soon this whole thing began to sort of unroll in front of our eyes. There were protests and demonstrations and activism, boycotts of every kind. There were kiss-ins that were scheduled in for homosexual couples to go and show public displays of affection in various Chick-fil-A organizations. In response, the conservative side then began their own rallies and their own demonstrations and began their own uh, Chick-fil-A appreciation days where you were supposed to go and show your support. And sort of the two sides went at it and and we sort of watched. Uh, About a month ago, the controversy erupted again as a pastor named Louis Giglio was invited and then disinvited from offering the prayer at the president's inauguration. And so controversy erupted again, and the controversy stemmed from a sermon that Pastor Giglio had preached about 20 years prior, in which he gave a biblical worldview and teaching on the issue of homosexuality. And again, it was front page news, and the media outlets went to cover it, and it was controversy for us all to consider and watch. It is no secret that Christianity and homosexuality have never mixed well, have never played well. And so some of us might ask ourselves, with that being the cultural landscape that we not in a distant day but on the present day find ourselves in, why on earth would we even go near this thing? Why not let it lie Leave it alone? Why on earth would we address it with all the risks that would even come with being misunderstood or misinterpreted no matter what we would say about it? Now, I'll tell you why we are addressing it this particular morning, but first let me say some preliminary words to sort of frame our time before I give you the reason why and plunge into this. Some preliminary words is this, that when you enter a conversation like this, of this kind, of this magnitude, of this nature, no matter where you are on the issue, undoubtedly we will not please everyone. Some of you will leave here today thinking that I said too much. Some of you will leave here today thinking I did not say nearly far enough. Some of you will think that I was too hard and too harsh. Some of you will think that I was not hard or harsh enough. Wherever you are on the issue, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to hear me out because that's what open-minded and tolerant people do. Tolerant people don't agree with each other on everything, but they hear one another out so that they can rationally disagree with each other. And so in that spirit of tolerance, I would invite you to hear me out. And then afterwards, I'm telling you, I will be here right after the service is done so that we can dialogue right? We can talk. I'll be here all day. In fact, I invite you to take me out to lunch and buy me lunch so that we can continue talking and we can talk for as long as you'd like so that we can dialogue together on this, right? Here's the sort of spirit I want us to have as we enter into this. If you've been a part of Seven Mile Road, you've heard me say this before. We'll say it many times again. There is in Jesus this beautiful and amazing balance of grace and truth, It's a remarkable thing. When when you come to know Jesus, it's remarkable how he blends together grace and truth. One of the gospel writers named John, one of the apostles, when he was describing Jesus, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and he was talking about Jesus, and he said, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and it says he came to us full of grace and truth. That is that unlike anyone else, somehow Jesus was able to blend both grace and truth in this incredible way. That, that is that he was full of conviction and full of compassion at the same time. That somehow Jesus never condemned those who were going to go, come to him, but also never compromised those who were going to come to him. Somehow, without condemnation or compromise, with full of grace and truth, with conviction and compassion, Jesus lived out his life. We so desperately want to do that. Right? There's a story in the Gospel of John of this woman caught in a sexual sin. She's brought to Jesus. And when you read how Jesus engaged that moment, when you read that narrative, what you come to discover is that neither the religious or the irreligious are entirely satisfied with how Jesus reacts. The conservatives and the liberals of the day would have been confounded by Jesus. Because the religious, the conservatives, they don't get what they want. Jesus doesn't stone this woman, as would have been the practice of that day. He doesn't condemn her. Instead, he moves to rescue her and redeem her. And in fact, the religious, the conservatives, have to walk away. But the irreligious don't get what they want either. The liberal side wouldn't get what they want because they don't find Jesus then condoning her actions, accepting her lifestyle, telling her it was no problem that she lived the way that she lived, but rather tells her that he redeemed her so that she could go and sin no more. That by rescuing her, he had put an obligation on her life to live a new kind of life. She could not go back to that which she once knew. And so the irreligious or the the liberal side doesn't get what they want. In Jesus, conservative and liberal doesn't fit all together well because he's above them all. And he is about the gospel, the good news that God has come into the world to redeem broken sinners of every stripe and persuasion and to reclaim them for his kingdom so that without condemnation and without compromise, he might make them new and set them to live in a way that is for him. Jesus is over and above all those things. And so when we see in him this beautiful blend of grace and truth, we'd want desperately for our lives, if you're a believer at Seven Mile Road, our talk, our engagement on issues, on people, on all things to be marked with the same grace and truth that you find in Jesus. Jesus had this remarkable way of saying, you know, this isn't a cultural issue, a social issue. This was about people. And I want you to hear that when we talk about this as well. We're not defending an issue. We're not engaging a social issue. We're talking about brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors and children, uh, ourselves. We're talking about people, real life people. And, And if you've heard conversations or read accounts, you'll hear of the internal turmoil and struggle. And we want to move towards that with compassion and conviction, with grace and truth so that's our heart as we approach that now the question of why are we considering this today in the first place on the first on the on the one hand I'd say this we've never wanted to highlight this one particular issue over and above the other ones and highlight homosexuality as somehow a sin that is the sin over and above others that feeds right into the Christian stereotype. Right? The stereotype is that churches highlight this one sin over and above the others. And by speaking on it, we've never wanted to feed into that stereotype. Right? Uh, Christians, and often because of our fault, have been labeled that way. This week I watched on Netflix two different documentaries on homosexuality and the scriptures. In both, particularly in one, the only Christians they found who spoke out against homosexuality were the most idiotic fringe people you would ever meet. One was just a a real idiot. The other one that they had was Fred Phelps, the pastor of the Westboro Church that has the God hates gays signs and protests, soldiers' funerals, and so on. That was the only representation of a Christian engagement on the issue of homosexuality. And so it's hard, no matter what you say, to not immediately be lumped into that. And so we've never wanted to feed into that. At the same time... Our passage this morning compels us to not gloss over this, but to address it head on. We're in a sermon series in 1 Timothy, and the passage that we come to today, uh, a passage that Binu spoke at and we're going to look at more closely, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, it uses a word for homosexuality that is only used in one of two places in the whole Bible. And so it would not be right to gloss over it because we will not come again to that word for a long time. It's only used in two places. Let me read for you this passage that you have it. If you have your Bibles, you can leave it open to 1 Timothy 1 or just hear it as I read it to you. This is what it says in verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, and here's the word, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So that this makes sense, let me just give you a quick word to sort of get you to understand this context. Paul is in this section in First Timothy, giving a teaching on the law, okay? He's giving a teaching on the law, and if you look at it very closely, basically what he's doing is he's running down through the second half of the Ten Commandments. If you remember Ten Commandments in, in your Sunday school classes, or if you've ever seen them, wherever it was, you've got these ten laws. He's running down the second half of them, and he's giving examples here of each one of them being broken, So for example, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. And here in this passage, what do you find? Those who strike their fathers and mothers. The sixth commandment is murder. What do you find? Murderers. The Eighth Commandment is about stealing, and so what do you find here? Those who enslave or enslavers, and that's literally folks who kidnap people in order to sell them into sexual slavery. This is human traffickers that we're talking about. The Ninth Commandment is do not bear false witness or false testimony against your neighbor, and so what do we have here? Liars and perjurers. Likewise, we skipped one. When it comes to the Seventh Commandment of do not commit adultery, Paul gives here as an example the sexually immoral, and men who practice homosexuality. Okay. If you're following with me, if you're astute, if you're paying attention, perhaps the question that you're thinking is, you see that? It's a list of a whole bunch of stuff. Why are you picking out one and preaching a whole sermon on it? You're doing the very thing you said you don't want to do. Why, out of this whole list of all these different things, are you preaching one sermon on homosexuality? You're not preaching a sermon on murderers or human traffickers or perjurers or liars or any of the rest. Why are you preaching one sermon? Are you not elevating this one thing over and above the rest? Friends, hear me out. Here's the reason it's because in our day, the question our society and our culture and our day would ask is, why is that word on that list? If you're here and you, you read this and you're in our day, you're asking yourself, out of that list of all this stuff, why is homosexuality on that list? The reason we're addressing it is because there would be no debate on whether murder is right or wrong. There are no debates or demonstrations on whether lying and perjury is acceptable or not. There are no pride parades for human traffickers. The only issue on this list that in our day would raise an eyebrow is how, when you've got murderers and perjurers and human traffickers, did men who practice homosexuality end up on that list? And it would be cowardice of us to gloss over that as though that raises no issue in our day and in our culture. You see, Paul could list these things, and what Paul's doing is he's listing these commands, and he's giving, in some cases, some severe examples of the breaking of them. Do you notice that? He's giving some severe examples of the breaking of the commandment. So he's saying you should honor your father and mother. He doesn't give as an example just a teenager who flips mom and dad off. He says imagine the kind of guy who strikes his father or mother. When he says, you should not steal, he doesn't just say, you know, the guy who takes the company pen and brings it home. He says, human traffickers. When he says, you should not lie, he gives the example of the person who would put their hand on a Bible and swear under oath that they were telling the truth. So he's giving these kinds of severe aberrations. And when he comes to the call for do not commit adultery, he cites those who are sexually immoral, and men who practice homosexuality. In Paul's day, they would have ran through this list and simply nodded their head and agreed that each of these were sins against these commandments. In our day, we would find this list at the the least raising questions or worse, deeply offensive. And so that's why we want to ask, and not gloss over, but ask the question of what in the world is this word doing in this list And moreover then, step back and ask the bigger question, which is, what does the Bible say about the issue of homosexuality? So as we consider that, let's invite the Lord for his help. Let's pray and ask that everything that we do might be full of grace and truth. Pray with me for a moment. Father, we pause simply to acknowledge right now our need for you. And we, as my voice is going out loud hear the prayers whispered quietly in your, in your people's ears that all that we would say and our ears as they hear, our minds as we think, our hearts as we decide whether to accept or reject, all of it would be full of grace and truth. Let the tone, let the words themselves, let the heart behind all these things as we hear them, as we engage them, as we preach them, as we receive them, Be full of grace and truth in a way that rightly reflects your son, Jesus Christ, and represents him well in this hour and in the course of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we look at this particular word or this specific issue, we've sort of got to step back and address a larger reality. Right? We've got to notice that in 1 Timothy 1, when Paul mentions this word, he's in a section where he's teaching on the law right? He's giving the commandments. And if you were here last week, you heard Binu teach on the law. And and if you remember, what he said was these Ephesian elders in the church at Ephesus, where Paul is writing this letter to in 1 Timothy, they were talking about the law, but they had no understanding what it was for or what its purpose was. And last week he taught that one of the purposes of the law was to reveal to us the nature of God, the character of God. Sort of like the law gives us a look into who God is right? You want to know who God is? He's holy. How holy? Well, he's the kind who who never tells a lie. You want to know who God is? He, He doesn't steal because everything is his, so he has nothing to take from anyone else. You want to know who God is? He's the kind who is always faithful in all his relationships and never cheats for a single moment. What each of the laws does is sort of gives us a vision of who God is, his character, his nature, what the Bible calls his holiness, And then related to that, hear me, what the law does then is, since that's who God is, what the law is trying to do is lead you into the life that is really life. What the law is trying to do is is saying, look, that's what pureness and delight and joy is. And so here are these commands that can lead you into that kind of life, that can lead you into the good life. Now, this is very counterintuitive. So you got to track with me because everything in your gut is saying, commandments don't lead us to joy or to life. Commandments restrict us, confine us. They rob us of joy rather than promoting joy, right? And, And if we're honest, many of us would say that's what we really think about God. What we think of God is a God who is in the heavens, and he's given us these ten rules among others because he's out to spoil our fun and rob our joy. We, we think of a God who every time he sees a smile is like ready to send down a lightning bolt because he's totally against all of that. And, and the scriptures would say, wherever you got that idea, that's not the God of the Bible. And these commands were given to lead us into the good life, to lead us into that which is truly life, to lead us into fullness of joy. God is not a thief. He's not to rob anything from you. He's not out to steal your joy, but to lead you to fullness of joy. Now, no matter how much I say that, I could say that till my dark brown skin turns blue, you will still not in your gut believe that. I know that. But, but I, I want you to hear these commands were given to set you free, to live the life you were called to live, to live the life that is truly life. To the fullness of joy. I'll give you an example. I had a professor in my seminary who gave this example of how he and his wife would love to play tennis. Maybe I've shared this with some of you before. He and his wife would love to play tennis, and they were much older in age, and their only aim in playing was simply to get a good workout, to get their heart rate up and get cardio. And so he and his wife would play tennis, and they'd hit the ball back and forth to one another. When they played, since their aim was to get their heart rate up and get a good workout, it didn't matter so much if the ball hit the ground one time or two times, as long as they were able to hit it back and forth. And it didn't matter if the ball hit the net or went into the net or skimmed the net, because the aim was just to hit it back and forth. And it didn't matter if it landed in the lines or outside the lines, because the aim was just to hit it back and forth. Now, imagine my professor went to the tennis open and saw Roger Federer playing. And imagine Roger Federer hits a shot that just falls one centimeter outside the line, and he bangs his racket, and he clenches his jaw and his fists, and he's angry. And imagine my professor calls him over and says, come here, boy. I don't know why I'd call him boy, or son, or whatever it is. Come here, son. Let me me talk to you. And he says, Roger, listen. My wife and I play this game all the time. And when we play, it doesn't matter if the ball hits once or twice. It doesn't matter if it hits the net or skims the net. And it certainly doesn't matter if it falls inside the lines or outside the lines. Just relax and go play with your friend. Just make sure your heart rate is up, right? What would Roger Federer say? (laughs) He'd say, listen, I don't know what it is that you and your wife play, but it is not tennis, right? Because it's the boundary lines that make tennis, tennis. It's the net, and it's the rules that that do what? That free Federer to play the game as it was meant to be played. Otherwise, it's silly people, old people, just hitting the ball back and forth to each other. It's the boundary markers, the the out-of-bounds lines, and the end zones that make football football. Otherwise, it's 22 angry men just running around in a field. Right? A train would be much freer on the beach then it would be confined to the rails and to the narrow track. But the problem is, trains don't run too well on sand, on the beach. The the train is actually freest when it's confined to the rails and bound by the tracks. Because then, it's freed to do that which it was made to do. And these commands have been given by a God who is desperately seeking to lead you into the good life. Who is desperately trying to show you that which is truly joy. That which is truly what you were made to be. The commands, every single one of them is trying to cast for you a vision of life as it was meant to be lived. And I want you to hear, this all stems to what you think God is like. God is not looking for, seeking your begrudging obedience. God is not glorified in your begrudging submission. God is glorified in your delight in him. God is glorified in your joy of him. And you know that. We all know that because that's the way we work. This week was Valentine's Day. If you husband showed up at the door with two dozen of the most expensive, overpriced roses that you could find on Valentine's Day. And your wife opened the door and said, oh, sweetheart, you shouldn't have. And you said back, of course I have to. It's Valentine's Day. (laughs) I made a vow, didn't I? Right? I made promises. Here you go. None of the wives here would be go. oh, that is so romantic. Right? You are right now even elbowing him going, you better never. I swear that'll be the last Valentine's Day, right? Now, on the other hand, if he rang the doorbell and gave these roses and said whatever you find in cheesy romantic movies, like you're my whatever and yadda yadda and yadda yada, then her heart would melt and every one of you, all the wives, would be poking and going, why can't you be more like that, right? We know... That we delight, we're glorified, not in begrudging submission. God is glorified, is seeking the fullness of joy, our delight in him. And he, because he is wise God, knows that which leads to life. He is showing for us in his commands that which leads us to fullness of life. So what God's saying to us is, listen, listen. I know that there are thousands of momentary joys, fleeting pleasures, but I'm giving you a vision for the life that is truly life. Now, in the moment, it will not always feel so. You won't won't feel joy in the moment, but God's communicating. He's he's saying to us, listen, I know a one-night stand is exciting. I know nights fluttering with pornography has a certain rush to it. I'm telling you, Fullness of joy. Permanent joy. True, not cheap, momentary, vapor-like joy. True joy is found in being faithful, so don't commit adultery. I know that there's a certain rush that comes with cutting corners and, and fibbing a little bit and acquiring so that you can have much, and there's a sort of pleasure that comes from having stuff, even if it's not yours. But I'm telling you, permanent, true lasting joy is found in integrity it's it's found in hard work and so do not lie and do not steal the the heart behind this is to give you the vision of life that is truly life and the point is god is out for not your 15 second evaporated joy but your 15 billion years from now joy there's a joy that is a permanent, everlasting, enduring, concrete joy. It's not vapor. It doesn't, it's not ephemeral. It's, it's not gone in a moment. There's a lasting true joy, and God is giving for us a vision of how to get into the good life, of the life that is truly life. And because he's wise, he's giving us that wisdom. Now here's the problem. None of us have lived that way. None of us have thought God to be wise. But each of us are rather convinced that we know what good life tastes and feels like. And so we're convinced to our core that these momentary pleasures are far greater and better than God. And we glut ourselves on little tinkets and toys so much so that we have no room for true joy. We glut ourselves on a thousand momentary pleasures that we have no room, no appetite for true or lasting joy. None of us have lived the life that God designed it to live. None of us saw God's nature in the law and saw it reflecting us and leading us to the good life and embraced that. Instead, we've all, all of us, every single one in humanity has said, I want what I want. In fact, Paul says it really well in the passage that Keith read for us. Paul is the one who wrote 1 Timothy, he also wrote Romans. Let me read for you what he says in Romans so that you can hear this. Romans 1 verse 21 says this, For although they knew God, he's indicting all of humanity, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So here's the thing. All of us think that we know better than God. And all of us think we know what brings us real life and real joy. And because of our so-called wisdom, God says we've all become fools. And all our hearts have become darkened. And the result is we've all, verse 23, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's this exchange that's happened in all of our hearts. And all of us, rather than living the life that is truly life and pursuing deep and lasting joy, we've all wanted lesser things. In fact, he goes here to say, look, rather than than gaining God through the things that he's made in all of creation, we want his stuff. A a, a preacher named Matt Chandler says this really well. He says, look, everything in creation was meant to lead you as a channel to get more of God because he is true joy. So, So food... The purpose of food, when God made food, the idea was you were supposed to taste it and you were supposed to go, what an amazing God, right? The way he says it is everything in creation is supposed to roll up into praise for God. And yet because of sin, everything in us terminates on the thing itself. So rather than being a channel that leads us to God, we terminate on the thing itself, right? Think of of this. You were supposed to eat food. That's why everything doesn't taste like broccoli, God gave a steak. You know why? Because as you cut into that, you were supposed to go, what an amazing God. I mean, if the point was just sustenance, everything would have tasted like broccoli. It doesn't. And so all these textures and all these flavors and all of it was supposed to roll up in our hearts to what an incredible creator God we have. For us, though, we turn to gluttony. Because rather than this thing being a means to God, this thing becomes the end itself. And now, rather than I eat this to glorify God, the comfort I'm looking for, the freedom from boredom I'm looking for, what, whatever your reason is, I turn to food and say, you be for me what God intended to be. Right? The, the pleasure of sex, I've said this before when we preached on it, if, if procreation was the only point, I mean, God could have made it anything. You stick a finger in your ear, Right? But he made this incredibly pleasurable experience. Why? Because the point was it was supposed to roll up in your heart to go, what an amazing God. And the oneness that you experience and enjoy was supposed to communicate some kind of glorious reality about the relationship of God and us and all these things. And yet, we're fallen, we're broken, and so these things terminate on itself. And sex leads to a perversion of a million kinds. And our point is to get it And in all these ways, what we've said is, we don't want you, we just want your stuff. I I don't want you, I don't find delight in you. Every human heart, every human heart has exchanged the glory and joy and delight of God for the cheap momentary pleasures of his stuff. Every single one of us. And now watch how God responds to that. Verse 26, it says this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Let me pause for a second. Three times in Romans 1, you find this language of God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Here's what's happening. In Romans 1, it says that in his wrath, do you know what God does? You have hell-bent, hell-bound sinners who say, I don't want God. I don't want, I want his stuff. And we're so insistent on what we want that God in his wrath finally gives us over. And says, have it your way. The, the passive wrath of God is consigning sinners to the hell of their own will. I'll say that again. Right? Some of us think that we're escaping God's wrath. There's no lightning bolts. Romans 2 takes care of that and says there's a day of judgment coming. Where you will give an account for everything. But until then, there is this passive wrath of God being shown. What is it? It's consigning sinners over to the hell of their own will. It's God essentially saying, have it your way. I mean, every one of us knows that. When I was a kid, I remember that, you know, you, you fought with your parents. The worst thing that my parents could say to me was not no, right? I would ask my parents something, and they would say no, no. It was the only English word my father knew. No. No means no. No, Right? And, and over and over again, no. That was not the worst thing they could say. The worst thing they could say is after my insistence over and over again, finally they go, go ahead. And every kid instinctively knows when mom or dad says, go ahead, have it your way, see what happens. I mean, you, you know you've crossed a certain point. My five-year-old Hannah, five, she'll insist on things over and over and over and over again, I'll say, no, 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 no. I, I kid you not, at five, there have been times where I go, you know what? Do it your way. And she immediately recalls and goes, no, 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 I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> at five, she knows. Listen, that, that's dangerous terrain. If dad's just giving me over to what I want. And the scriptures are saying in Romans 1, you're not getting away with anything. Your hell-bent life is simply the passive wrath of God giving you over to what you want. And saying, you want my stuff rather than me. And basically what all of that is, is it's idolatry. We're saying, we want this over and above God. I want myself. God hands us over. And then, this is how we're tying it all together. One of the expressions of that wrath of God is to hand humanity over to homosexuality. Look at what he says in verses 26 and following. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here's what the scriptures are teaching. The scriptures are saying in his passive wrath, in his letting man go to the way that he wants to go, in his consigning humanity to the hell of their own will, God judges the world with homosexuality, that homosexuality is the judgment of God in letting man go their own way. Now, before I lose you for a second, let me me just explain why. Pastors and scholars, much brighter than me, have have noticed something incredible and profound in this. And and here's what it is God designed everything to lead us into the fullness of joy for His glory. And, And even heterosexual marriage has a purpose greater than itself, right? So a young man will grow up, and one day, suddenly, the lights will go on, and he'll notice her for the first time in his life, the girl. And then the rest of his life is engaged in what? Having one of those. I've got to get one of those. So he works, he studies, he gets a job. Everything that he does is pursuit of her. And if he's a Christian man, he will continue to pursue her till the end of his days. Now, all of that is not just biological wiring. God made it that way, the scriptures tell us, Ephesians 5, Genesis 1 and 2. God made it that way so that through that he might communicate the truth of the gospel, the good news. That is that this is supposed to proclaim God saw us and set his affection on us, and pursued us, and gave all that he had till he would have us as his own, and will never let us go. All of that is is what is powerfully portrayed in a heterosexual marriage. Now, the greatest perversion then of that is for a man to say, I don't want the woman, I'll take myself, or namely another man. Or a woman to say, I don't want the man, I want myself and to take, namely, another woman. That why Paul is citing homosexuality as an example of the exchange every human being, every one of us has made in not wanting God but wanting ourselves is that God is saying to us, look, the evidence, the the sort of visible example of what your exchange and idolatry looks like is portrayed in homosexuality. That it's a picture of our rebellion, all of our rebellion. And that what I want above all things is myself. And so I'll take another one like me. Now, what shall we say to all of this? Hang with me for a little bit longer. What shall we say to all of this? I want to get there, but first I want to quickly, very quickly, just address some of the common pushbacks to what I've said. Right? I, I want to get to what do we do as believers in Jesus Christ with all of this? But I want, to, I want to quickly address some of the pushback to this. Again, a, a pastor named Matt Chandler preached a sermon I would highly recommend to you. His content and structure were incredibly helpful for me. And he, and he sort of shares some of the common objections, and some of which I would want to share with you. Here's what I'd say. It's been no secret that the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is not popular. That's not new. What is remarkably new is this new, recent movement to get the Bible itself to sanction homosexuality. Does that make sense? For a long time, the Bible's teaching on homosexuality has never been popular, and so what people have done is chuck the Bible, right? We don't like what it says, we chuck the Bible. That's not new. What is remarkably new is now taking the Bible and contorting it and twisting it in a way that you will get it to say that homosexuality is sanctioned and blessed by God. That is remarkably new in the history of the world. So what are some of the, if what I've said is true, but what about? Those are sort of some of the objections that come. Let, Let me give you a few of them. For example, some things that are often pushed back is, how come you never find Jesus saying anything about this? If you're all about Jesus, and Jesus is the son of God who had come to show us that which was most important. How come you don't find a single verse, a single sentence, a single word from the mouth of Jesus on this issue? Why is Jesus completely silent on homosexuality? Here's the response. There are a myriad of things Jesus has never talked about. Robert Gangnon in his book, The Bible and Homosexuality, which I would recommend to you if you want to pursue this or study this further. He makes the simple point that Jesus never speaks about incest. Others have noticed Jesus never speaks about genocide. He never speaks about pedophilia or bestiality. Now hear me, I'm not by any of them comparing homosexuality to these things. What I'm saying is there are things that were in Jesus' day so common that Jesus had no need to address them. Jesus was a first century Jew and in his day, both in the scriptures and scholars would agree, there was no question about the morality of homosexuality. There was no debate going on. So Jesus didn't need to add his voice to something everyone was in agreement on. It is not the day we are in now. And so like all these other things that Jesus knew everybody agreed on, so he did not speak an extra word on homosexuality either. Some would say, but, but listen, Jesus is for love. And Jesus is for my fulfillment. How can you tell me that what Jesus wants to do is consign me over to a life where I'll never find an outlet for my sexuality? Do you hear that? The argument is, listen, if, if you're telling me, and this is true, same-sex attraction people who follow Jesus Christ live a life where they are constantly reigning in their desire and committing themselves to a life of celibacy with all the tr- struggle and toil that comes with it, with no outlet for their sexuality. And so the pushback is, do you really think that Jesus is gonna confine a man to that kind of difficult life? Hear me. Jesus taught in such a radical way that even his peers couldn't stomach what he was saying about some things. Jesus narrowed the number of sexual partners we could have in a way that was radical even for his day. So for example, there was a conversation about marriage and divorce in his day. Jesus held up such a high teaching that literally one of his disciples said, who on earth would want to get married then? If, if you're setting the bar like this. Jesus taught on divorce and he said this. He said that if a man gets divorced for an unbiblical reason, and I'm not going into all of that now. He says it would be adultery for that man to have sex again. So what Jesus does is, for example, if you have a 25-year-old man who gets divorced for an unbiblical reason, that man is confined to his celibacy unless he either reconciles with his wife or death parts them from their vows. Jesus narrowed this in such a way that it was hard for anyone to stomach. And even in our day, the Christian church, it is far easier to talk about homosexuality as wrong than it would be to talk about divorce on unbiblical grounds. And Jesus is saying for this man, I'm going to show you a treasure in in myself, no matter how hard that would be, or so to the woman. The point is, Jesus is far more for our holiness than he is simply for our momentary happiness. And his spirit provides the grace, like all of us, to do that which God calls us to do. Some will say, listen, how can homosexuality be wrong or unnatural if it occurs in nature? If you talk with folks or you hear arguments, you'll hear this thrown all the time. People will literally say, and the documentary I watched, they had this cute graphic of all these different species where they found homosexual behavior. And it was supposed to be this pow pow point of, don't you see? If you find it in nature, how can it be unnatural? You just read Romans 1 where Paul says men and women gave up that which was natural. How can you call this unnatural if we find it occurring in nature? And for a second, you're won over by it until you you think. And you sort of follow that argument down its logical conclusions. Are we really saying that everything that occurs in nature is natural or acceptable or morally right? There are species that after the woman is impregnated, she kills the husband. There is no mom here who is sanctioned to kill dad as soon as they're done. There are species where mom and dad will kill their offspring and consume them. Species where dad will kill the male son if the male son presents a threat to his rule over the herd. And yet nobody's ready to go. Well, it occurs in nature. It must be right. No, and at best you'd go, well, you're just using examples that are abnormal or anomalies. That's exactly the point. Homosexuality within the natural world of even the animal world is at best an aberration or an anomaly. Even if you don't believe in God, even if you believe in natural selection, natural selection would say the same thing. Natural selection is the theory that every species does that which promotes the survival of the species. And everything else is pushed down to the side as fringe or anomaly. We have no species where homosexuality is the norm. Why? Because if homosexuality was the norm in any species, that species would be extinct. At best, natural selection would say this would be an anomaly behavior, an aberrant behavior. In the scriptures, or even in the world of natural selection, we would say that. And this raises even the question of, you know, what are we born with? What's genetic? What are we hardwired with? Or orientation? The question of, listen, what if this is not a choice? What if this is something you are born with? What do we do then? Uh, Ann Curry of, I think, NBC, had an interview with a pastor named Rick Warren. And in it, she asked him, if it is scientifically proven... That homosexuality is a genetic predisposition, that we are born with this trait. Would you be willing to change your position? And he said, Absolutely not. And she had a mild panic attack, and when she calmed down, he said, Let me explain. He said, Science tells us that there are all kinds of social issues that are genetically linked. Alcoholism is genetically linked. There are cases of of different social disorders in prisons that they've studied and find genetic wiring for. He further went on to say, let me tell you something else. I am wired to sleep with as many beautiful women as I can, and yet nobody in society would say that that would be acceptable for my wife, for my children, or society at large. And his point was simply this, we've all got, and the scriptures would add on and say, we've all got this orientation away from God. All of us have a bent, a proclivity towards that which is not him, but his stuff. All of us have done this exchange for God, for his created things, and every single one is bent with these instincts and urges, and yet none of them are sanctioned or approved simply because they're in us. We're wired towards promiscuity and sin because we're broken in the fall, And that's what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach you have been profoundly broken because of sin. Every part of you, even to your sexual desires, heterosexual or homosexual desires, we all know of the brokenness in that realm that we've faced. Right? I want to just tell you, the Christian life is this constant fight between who I was born as and who Jesus made me when I was born again, right? If if you don't know what born again means, don't let that term throw you off. Jesus is basically saying you have a new life in him, and I'm telling you my story, and any Christian here who's honest will tell you, our entire Christian life is this fight between who we were born as and who Jesus made us when we were born again, and there's this constant fight between who I was and who I am now in Jesus, And I'm constantly fighting orientation and impulse and instinct and desire. That is part of the Christian life. There's many more that we could say. Some will say that the kind of homosexuality that the scriptures are speaking about is not what we have today. And so they'll use the Bible to say what Paul and the apostles and all the scriptures were against were, were against exploitive relationships or promiscuous relationships. The, the scriptures were against things like gang rape or an older man with a boy or a slave with his owner and these kinds of exploitive relationships. And, and, and uh, for the sake of time, I'll say you th- tell you this. Christian scholarship and non-Christian scholarship have together discarded that. I mean, the kind of gymnastics you have to do with the scriptures, the kind of hoops you have to jump, and tumbles and twists that you have to make with the verses to get it to say what you want it to say is disingenuous and has no integrity whatsoever. There's still more, but let me say this one as well. Many will ask, aren't you all sinners? How dare you speak on this sin when you have sin as well? And I want to end with this. An authentic Christian could not agree with you more. An authentic Christian is not one who's standing on a pillar and looking down at this rabble of sin, including homosexuals. An authentic Christian is one who stands alongside you and says, I am more broken than you will ever know. And I am the chief of sinners. And yet Jesus Christ came for me. It's true what they say, that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's how a Christian engages this conversation. It is not I am full in myself or I have a righteousness of myself. It's I'm a beggar who found bread, and I'm inviting you to find him as well. The Christian message is an invitation to here is fullness of life. Come enjoy the life that is truly life. This is why, if you remember again, we're in a section where Paul is teaching on law. And we said the purpose of the law is to communicate to us who God is and to lead us into the good life. You know what the other purpose of the law is? And Binu taught this last week. Is to reveal to us that none of us have kept that. And to push us to the need for a savior. That's what the law does. The law has never led anyone to the good life. The law has never saved anyone because the law is powerless to do so. The law presents to us what the good life is, but it's powerless to get us there. To get us there, we need a savior. That's why you have the law. It's like the analogy he said last week. At best, the law is a thermometer. If you're sick, you don't put a thermometer in your mouth hoping it heals you. At best, what the thermometer does is show you how sick you are and compels you to need a cure. Well, that's what the law does in the Bible. These commandments stand as a reflection of the good life. And as we gaze upon them, what it's supposed to do is convince us, none of us have kept that. All of us need a cure. You can't speak of the law for two minutes without immediately speaking of the gospel. Because that's what the the law was designed to do. Drive you in despair of yourself to, I need help. I can't do that. I've never done that. I won't do that. I need help. Which is, by the way, one breath after he speaks of the law in verses 3 through 11. In verse 12, his immediate thing is to say, thank God for Jesus Christ, who showed mercy and grace to me, though I was a lawbreaker, and he spells it out, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but to me was shown mercy and grace And then he goes on to say in verse 15, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You hear what that says? An authentic Christian is one who goes and says, let me tell you who the worst person I know is. It's me. And yet he showed me mercy, and he showed me grace, so that I might come and invite you in to that same mercy and grace. Here's the point of the law. There has been only one person, one, who ever saw the good life and kept it. Only one who lived as God had told him to live. And that was Jesus Christ. God so saw us that he sent his own son to live the life that he had designed for us to live and none of us lived. And hear this, rather than receiving the good life for that perfect obedience, Jesus received all the wrath that Romans 1 and 2 talks about. All that wrath that God had stored for you was poured onto Him who lived the good life in your place for you. So that on the cross, God pelts His own Son with the wrath you deserve for your brokenness and sin. So that in Him we might receive not wrath, but mercy and grace and a Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which can now empower us to live finally the good life, not in our own strength but in him. That's the good news. That's what the law propels us to. And wherever we are, whatever brokenness we have of whatever persuasion or stripe, the point of this all is to drive us to a savior who lived the good life, died in our place, and invites us into that life with him. There will be undoubtedly many more questions and conversations that we need to have and ought to have. Practical questions, like what do I do? How do I engage? Uh, All kinds of questions that I want to invite you on this day to continue in dialogue with, both with me and with your community, that we might live as Jesus in this city and this world, as people who are full of grace and truth compassion, and conviction that we would never compromise but also never condemn any who would come to Christ. Let's pray together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As we read that, Father, and as we consider that, we find ourselves on that list of folks who will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of us at the very least, are idolaters who have exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. All of us are people who do not believe that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. All of us are people who have traded the glory of God for temporary trinkets and toys. Thereby, none of us deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. But your word continues, and such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We have nothing, O Lord, to boast in today except in Christ. He kept the law we didn't keep. He died the death we deserved to die. He gave us the life we didn't deserve. And he invites us into fullness of joy because he is gracious and merciful. Come and show yourself to us wherever we are in this journey as this true God. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.